This is HPR episode 2478 entitled City of Masks, HPR Audiobook Club, and is part of the series HPR Audiobook Club. It is hosted by HPR Audiobook Club and is about 86 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is The HPR Audiobook Club reviews City of Masks with author Mike Reeves Macmillan. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Welcome to another edition of the Hacker Public Radio Audio Book Club. For our longtime listeners, you might notice that I am not the intrepid Pokey. Uh, he should be joining us later this evening. I'm your host for the evening, or panelist, or something. I don't know, really know what I am. Uh, X1101. Uh, tonight we're going to be discussing a book called City of Masks, and we're joined by actually the author of the book, Mike as well as Semiotic Robotic. How you doing? Hey, evening to both of you. Mike, thanks so much for being here. This is a real pleasure. Seems like we've lost Mike for the moment, so we'll hold off till he jo- joins back up. Mike, welcome back. You having some connection issues there? Sorry, I accidentally muted on hardware, so uh, that was why you couldn't hear me. Oh, uh, we've all done it. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Um, I don't know how... I don't think we've had very many authors join us for... Uh, book club. Well, my pleasure to come and join in. I'm looking forward to hearing what you had, what you thought about the book. Uh, Both for you, Mike, and for the listeners, any listeners at home unfamiliar with our format, I'll um, just go over it again. We'll usually spend a little bit of time going over what we thought about the book without spoiling any of the, the plot. So we'll talk about general themes, general impressions, recording quality, sound quality, things like that. Um, then we'll break for a little bit and do a beverage review. Uh, we do, do deliberately call it a beverage review. We've got people who review beer, wine, uh, hard liquor, tea, coffee, water. Uh, we've got we've got all types. And then after that, we'll jump right in and you know the kitty gloves come off and we'll you know rip into the plot and spoil the crap out of it. Sounds good. So semiotic robotic. Let's uh, start with you. What did you think? I really enjoyed this book. Uh, I had to read the book instead of listen to the audiobook because uh, I couldn't get the audiobook to work on my particular uh, stereo setup, but I really enjoyed it. It had a fantastic, it was just a fantastic read. I I just couldn't believe the, the finesse that uh, Mike displayed here. I mean, the language was, was antiquated without sounding hokey. Um, so many times I read books, I think, that, that try to sound antiquated and try to mimic a sort of older style and they don't succeed or they just sound a little forced but there was something so natural about mike's writing that um i was floored i was impressed yeah i mean i I thought the language felt very natural as well i i didn't even really occur to me that it was anything other than appropriate for the time period that this book seems to be set in you know, I was curious about that, um, had a question for Mike, if he had a particular time period in mind, if this was supposed to be 
a sort of alternate dimension if there was some kind of like what what he uh what he kind of conceived as the space and time of the novel well it's kind of shakespeare's italy but not really it's more or less like medieval early renaissance but with lower technology and the language itself is probably more 18th century with one or two medieval expressions on it. So I wasn't going for a particular place or a particular time, but it has hints of early Renaissance Venice being kind of the inspiration. It's kind of a, a Hollywood um, inspired by rather than a based on. Right, that makes sense. I get you. As a story consumer, so I can't really speak much as at all as an author, but it seems like it would be easier you could take more liberties if you're targeting a fictional time and place rather than trying to write a novel set in a specific time and place because you have more liberty to take the bits and pieces you like from this time period and that location where if you were trying to say this was you know 14th century florence it's it you have some pretty you know to be accurate you've got some tight guidelines to follow there whereas you can you can borrow this from this century and this from that location it gives you a broader playground is that Sound about right, or am I off the mark there? No, no, you're quite right. I'm very lazy about research, and so it's much easier just to make things up rather than try to be strictly historical. So, but it also gives I you. Think, um, sorry, go ahead. Carry on. I think of this as kind of a fantasy novel without magic, in that setting is like a made-up fantasy setting, a secondary world setting, but there's no actual magic in it. Yeah, that was the... So why choose it then? I'm curious what, uh, I mean, in any time period, you could have masks in contemporary England, you could have masks in the 23rd century. So I'm just curious why you selected that particular epoch. Um, I enjoy Shakespeare. I try to go to live plays whenever there's one on. And masks, to me, suggests Venice. So those two things kind of came together and suggested a setting. It's not like Venice and it doesn't have canals, but it is a harbour city and a trading city. Well, the many layers of walkways and layers of the city almost stands in for the canals in some ways. Hmm. Yes, that's true. So you've got that's the, a good point. I hadn't thought about that. You've got the low roads that are kind of below ground level and the high roads that are up the sides of the buildings and yeah, yeah, that, it is kind of like that. As I was um, listening to it both times, I listened to it both right after our last audiobook club and then just last week, I, I kept wondering a lot of these things, specifically like the specifically the the genre and your description of it's just about right. It's it's a fantasy setting without most of the typical fantasy elements. Yeah, one of the things that makes it hard to market is that. It doesn't have a clear genre. It's it's speculative fiction is about as clear as you can go. Hey guys, sorry I am late. Just earning your nickname once again. <laughs> yes, I haven't earned it yet. Uh, how you doing, guys? And Mike, nice to meet you. Likewise. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us this week. That's uh, that's great of you to do. Oh no problem. And Pokey, can you recall offhand how many? times we've had other authors on i would say 
three times, but only one other time was the author there for their own book. Okay, so that's Christiana. Yes, sir. Christiana Ellis came on uh, for her own book, and then two others came on specifically didn't want to be on for their own book, didn't want to alter the conversation. I don't think they would have anyway, but uh, either way. I feel like a pioneer. A what now? A pioneer. Oh, yeah, right on. Pokey, we were just talking about Mike's decisions with regard to setting and style, uh, and he was explaining to us sort of what he had in mind for uh, his what, – what he sort of had in his imagination regarding, um, you know, the the setting of the book. Oh, man, the, the setting. May I – can I jump in then? Sure. Please do. Please do. I just thought the setting was, was beautiful. All I could picture when listening to this was just this, you know – gilded and white lacy world and you know very tidy people you know of course that all being just the veneer over over the surface but it was always beautiful and i was able to picture it beautifully i, I don't have a very active Im- imagination as i've said before in the show when it comes to visualizing settings but in this one i think i could it felt very much like oh kind of like uh, a mass uh, uh no a cask of a month Tiago, I think that's how you pronounce it, Amontillado, um, by Poe. It, it kind of had that, that feeling to it the whole time, but deeper. It was just, it was fantastic. I, I, I loved it. I loved every moment of this audiobook. I believe it's Cask of Amontadalo. I'll take your word for it. Thanks. I'm looking it up for the show notes. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It just, I, I thought the setting itself, just especially the, the three different layers of the city the three different layers of setting just did a real good job of shifting gears when when gears needed to be shifted without without grinding them too bad or slipping the clutch too bad if if it's a strange metaphor i apologize i think a lot of what i was doing with that was as well as with the masks was making making things that are usually internal and hidden open and visible so the the class structure in the city is reflected in the in the physical structure of the city, and the the low people use the low roads and the high people use the high roads, as well as the masks revealing something about who people are as they're walking around. And of course, you sound like you're a personalist. Yeah, well, and the um, the way in which um, masks reveal person or or are the person if you prefer that was that was kind of the seed from which the book grew and there's an oscar wilde quote about how a mask is not there to hide somebody's identity but to reveal it it's um something that i kind of had turning over in my mind as i was writing it i love the idea that whatever whatever mood you were in that day or perhaps whatever job you had to get done that day. You just you put that mask on, and everyone around you was required to treat you the way that that mask dictated. And and at the same time, you were required to behave as the mask dictated. So it was it was a very sort of liberating prison. It's <laughs> mm, a good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, the as the book went along, I did have this idea, kind of question, and what Pokey said, kind of jog my memory there if each person's given masks that they're permitted to wear at some point 
you start to develop as a person contrary to your mask and, you know, run the risk of the very serious crime of being unmasked for exploring who you might be contrary to the masks that you currently possess. Yes. Yes. And in fact, um, a couple of the characters do do kind of skirt that. And yeah, yeah, that's um, very much case that as well as that, it's a, it's a mechanism, of course, of social control in that you have to decide who you are and then only be that person. And that tends to flatten out the way that people uh, play out their identity. And you can only be, you can only have an identity that's socially approved of. Again, I was kind of making outward explicit rules city for things that we have unspoken, unwritten rules about in our that kind of speaks a little bit to the concept of double speak and double think as you know mm. inter- introduced by Orwell, whereby controlling the language people can use not just to communicate but to internalize thought, you really control what people think, and this is kind of a an externalization of that same concept it seems like mm. yes, yes, it is but again, back to Pokey's point about how it's a liberating prison. At the same time, you can only be the mask you're wearing, but to be a different person, you have simply to change masks. A concept that I came across in one of Philip K. Dick's novels, um, it's a German word. Uh, the, the word is Maschenfreiheit, meaning mask freedom. And it's the, f- the freedom that you have when you're wearing a mask, that you can, you can be that identity without you can be that identity without um without anybody contradicting it in a sense yeah i i think that's really interesting but what x1 x1 101 was just saying strikes me as a little more nuanced in the book because there's mm, the characters don't really have the freedom that they would all desire to switch masks or change masks whatever they'd like, because there's not only an entire government apparatus set up around regulating uh, control of masks and who can wear what mask and under what conditions, but there's a, a giant book of masks that catalogs and controls uh, and keeps tabs on the amount of masks and the kinds of masks that have been distributed throughout the city and to you know reduce redundancy or to be sure that no one is uh, masquerading as someone they shouldn't be or to keep appearing at the same time. Um, So what started out as a sort of fanciful or farcical sort of uh, tradition turns into a very stringent apparatus of governmental control. Mm. Yes, very much. Yes, it started out as play and it started out as as freedom and license and then – it was co-opted, in a sense, as a, as a mechanism of control. All right. So I thought the one thing about it, it seemed so liberating that you could throw on a mask and just be who you wanted to be. But it seemed like a nightmare that you had to pretty much leave your mask on, even when you're home. It said that many lovers didn't see each other unmasked. So, yeah, it just it seemed... That part seemed almost prison-like, where you you go home and you have to leave your mask on. You could be completely undressed, but your mask is still on for most people. And that that part of it seemed a little prison-like, like like your your own identity is just kind of 
in the coat closet and, and never can come out. It also seems like a lot of trouble because half the time I can't even be bothered to have pants on. We didn't need to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much all mask all the time. Once you're once you're in the city of masks, and I was definitely um, making a point with that. So the other thing is, it felt like um, I don't know. It kind of place was the city supposed to be? Was it like an Italian type of carnival scenario? <laughs> or did you guys already talk about this? Yeah. Um, I kind of cite Shakespeare's Italy as, as my inspiration. Um, and Shakespeare's Italy specifically because I get some twins in there at a couple of points and there are a few other Shakespearean bits to it. But um it's more or less Venice, which is traditionally associated with masks, only without owls. And the um, even the two factions, the personalists and the um, yeah, the yeah, two factions. The characterists. Anyway. Characterists. There we go. You guys have read it more recently than I have, although probably not, <laughs> probably not as many times. Um, the characterists and the personalists were were loosely based on the Guelphs and. Ghibellines, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, of Renaissance Italy, who were politic philosophical factions but would have street fights about it. That is cool. Now, I just want to say, Mike, to you, I want to thank you personally for this audiobook. It's been one of my favorites since I found it. And I listened to this audiobook a long, long time ago, the first time. And I've been holding off until it could be an audiobook club book. And I was holding off on that until we had a good crew that I knew would, would stick with a book because I remembered it, the audio being a little muffled and, and maybe a little more bassy than it should have been. So I, I held off. But I, I do want to say that um, when me and another guy started the audio book club uh, several years ago, this book was one of the reasons that I started it is just because I wanted to get people to give this one an honest listen and an honest discussion about it. So I, I thank you for the book and for coming on with us. And I have to say, Pokey, either your memory of the quality of the book was off or a new version has been uploaded because after you mentioned that last week I went – or last month rather, I went in, you know, intending to, you know, slog through it because it sounded like you thought it was a really good story. And I only noticed a few little corners that were – a little odd it was not I, I was expecting not good audio and i thought the audio was pretty good yeah i wasn't using very expensive gear and i did have feedback from at least one person that they had some difficulties difficulties with the audio but i think it may have been partly their gear i listened to it on headphones and fairly cheap headphones when i was editing it and um, it sounded fine to me, but if you're putting it through certain kinds of speakers, possibly, uh, you might have not quite so good a sound quality. Yeah, I... yeah, that's what happened to me, unfortunately, but it was my issue. Not, I don't think anything with the book. It may just be the headphones that I'm using now, and I think the headphones that I had before were probably worse. Uh, because it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought I remembered it being. It, it, I mean, it was a little muddy at some points, and I noticed it more towards the end of the book than the beginning, so it might have been a fatigue thing as well. But, it, it, like I said, it was not nearly as bad as I thought I remembered it being, and, and it was uh, even more enjoyable the second time through, maybe just because I had better headphones that were a little clearer. 
While we're on the subject of the audiobook as an object, Mike, I'm wondering if you might speak a little bit about your decision to publish the book the way that you did. As you might suspect, the our audience here is very interested in issues of uh, free culture and related issues like that. And so I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about your adventure in publishing it and your decision to release the audiobook the way that you did. Yeah, that that's it, really. I, I know I'm personally curious, and I suspect our listeners would be as well. Well, it's going back a few years now. I think it was 96 that I did the audio book. I can't actually remember why it was that I wanted to do an audio book. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. And I thought, now podcasts are a thing. Surely you could do an audio book as a podcast. And I did some quick Googling and discovered that I was not the first person to think of this. And in fact, there was a whole community over at podiobooks.com of people who were doing that. And so I hopped on that train and uh, really enjoyed doing the audio book, um, had great fun doing the voices. And although the other thing was, uh, was somewhat tedious. <laughs> and... Um, what Podio Books provided was a platform to to make the work a bit better known. And I knew that it was going to be a minority interest. It wasn't going to be something that was that was um widely popular because how do you even describe it? But it was a way to reach some a wider audience and that's one thing that Podio Books is good for. And they have a great community as well. People are very helpful. It's all moved on to Google Plus now. And in fact, it was Evo Terra from Podio Books who moved me on to Google Plus because um, he basically said, our forum keeps getting hacked. We're moving to Google Plus. Who's with me? And I've met lots of other writers, including non-Podio Book people over there and uh, and found it wonderful for my writing and um, as a source of support. So... That's all worked really well. Um, in those days, I don't think... Well, ACX wasn't operating. The um, the Audible um, service where you can uh, either do your own narration or get somebody to do it. And I don't know that Audible was really that open to people kind of coming up out of nowhere and saying, here's my book. So Podio Books was really the place to be. And, but I think even if I was doing it today, I probably would go Podio Books rather than Audible because even though there's a smaller market and it's specifically, um, it's specifically free, although they do have a donation button, of course. I just kind of like the, the open feel of it and, um, and the indie ethic that's around Podio Books as opposed to the commercial ethic of, Audible, who um, who profit pretty heavily from from your work, uh, they take quite a large whack out of whatever your book makes. So, so, for all those reasons, happy that I went with Podio Books. So, talking about the open ethics and culture, can you tell us what license your book is under? Because I don't remember seeing that, and I don't remember hearing. Is it a an all rights reserved, or is it one of the Creative Commons licenses that you license it under? The um, the text, the 
both the paperback and the ebook are all rights reserved, but uh, the recording is released under Creative Commons. I think it's about 2.5 in those days, and it's a um, non-commercial, the one where you can't modify it for your own purposes. Um, no derivatives. No derivatives, yeah. Non-commercial, no derivatives. It's amazing what you can do with a, a open framework like that and a uh, a good community surrounding it. So did you discover, Mike, did you discover Patio Books after you had written the book, while you were writing it, before? Because it, I know that books are typically divided into chapters, but your story reads like a play. It has very, it has a dramatic pacing to it. And so I was wondering if your decision to go on patio books and release the book episodically like that in in some way influenced your writing and the way you conceptualized the writing process and how you segmented the book. No, I wrote it first and then found patio books afterwards. The way the book is structured as a series of mostly diary entries actually in some ways is not ideal for patio books. Chapters really work better because... Most people, when they're listening to a patio book, they want at least 20 minutes and preferably half an hour, even longer, as a as an episode. And admittedly, my um, diary entries are quite short, but it wasn't always easy to find the right place to break between them. It was a lot of fun doing the, um, doing the style, though, with the documents, the letters, the the diary it's uh it's a style that's been around for a while dracula uses it but yeah i was just um, thinking of dracula yeah i hadn't actually read dracula at the time that i wrote it i only read dracula last year and really enjoyed it uh it's very well done there's a reason it's a classic but agreed um, it's um yeah it's it's an interesting way of being able also to have multiple first person points of view the um the diary of Celia, for example, the um, the sister of the of the manservant. I went through and put those in actually after I'd done the the main bulk of the writing, kind of as an alternative voice, and uh, had a lot of fun doing Celia's unpunctuated, misspelled, rambling diary entries, and just in in contrast to the to the very precise and stuffy main character who um, who does his diary entries in a, in a very formal way. I thought that her uh, her diary entries were particularly you know interesting and amusing. A lot of our longer term listeners will know or might remember I listen to all my audiobooks at about 1.8 speed simply because I want to listen to a lot of stuff and I don't have as much time as I'd like to to do it and that's the way that I get my content in. And so listening to her at 1.8 was always amusing and entertaining. Yeah, she's kind of at 1.8 to start with. Yeah, yeah. The I thought she came across brilliantly. You could you got so much of her character out of how her diary entry was read. It I, it was great. Agreed. And it's I was really surprised to hear you just say Mike that um that you inserted those in when the novel, when you had come to the conclusion in the novel, because it's Salia that her voice concludes the book. So, yeah, it may not have been when I was all the way finished, but um, it certainly was was not something that I planned from the beginning. That's weird, because wow, it just happened. Everybody left the room. 
It almost looked like a net split, except we're on Mumble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was wondering what what the heck that was. Mike, are you oh, back I might have clicked in the wrong place. No, you clicking in the wrong place wouldn't have kicked Semiotic Robotic out like it did. You can take yourself out that way, but it, it wouldn't take someone else out. Not unless you're administrator. Well, you might I'm be, back. I don't know. That's weird, I guess. Oh, no, we're not hearing you now, Mike. Better? Yeah, I can hear you. There we go. Okay. Yeah, it's it's strange to hear you say that about Celia, that you didn't write her until the book was almost done, because earlier parts of the book seemed like they were written... Jeez, I don't want to... It seemed like they were written around maybe the mystery of her. I don't know. I don't want... I can't spoil it yet. I'll get back to it later. It's hard. It's tough with this book. Yeah. Actually, for... The, the book took me, I think it was about 10 years from beginning to end. And most of that time was the first three entries, probably sitting there waiting for what happened next. And it was only when I got a big piece of paper and drew a, a diagram of who was connected to whom and who was in conflict and who was, uh, who was in love and where all of the factions lay that I found a way forward into a plot. Oh, that is cool. So you didn't have like an outline of the story when you started? Oh, not at all. I have gradually become more of an outliner. Uh, the book I'm working on at the moment, I've outlined pretty thoroughly. But to start out with Total Panzer, no idea what was going to happen next. Oh, that's fantastic. Are you, so you're not a professional writer then? No, no. Um, I work in IT, don't we all? Um, <laughs> and I write in my spare time, but um, but I enjoy it. Wow. I should, a... I should say that I do have some training and that I have an MA in English, mostly language, but some 16th and 17th century literature as well, uh, which is kind of where the feel comes from, I think, for the um, for the way the book comes together. And I was also uh, a professional editor for a few years and then a technical writer. So um, so I do have a background, but um, I don't as yet make my living out of writing. It, it, it's always amused me going down that rabbit hole for just a moment, seeing people of kind of almost a generation ahead of me who didn't set out to be in IT, set out to do something else and then ended up in IT. Whereas people more my age, and I'm late 20s, start out knowing they're going to be in IT. And I, I just find that very – the differences are interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm 47. So when I was at school, IT hardly existed. We were the first class, I think, that actually had computers in the classroom, and they were the old Commodore VIC-20s. And um, so I – I did English because it was what I enjoyed and, and what came easily to me and with no real idea of what it was going to lead to and then went into publishing because that was the only job I knew that you could do with an English degree that was teaching. And since both my parents were teachers, I'd always sworn I never would be. <laughs> and, um, and then gradually editing became more technological during the 90s and I started to work with databases and ended up um, creating what, in retrospect, was almost a small ERP system for the department that I was working for in uh, Access 95 with um, with uh, VBA. 
and gradually what I did became more and more technical until I kind of gave up and and admitted that I was working in IT. And let me guess, they're probably still using that uh, ERP system written in VBA and Access 95 to this day. It wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason that we use the word legacy as often as we do. Although actually that publishing company has now more or less closed down. It was bought by uh, an international company, which has now basically shut down its New Zealand operations except for distribution and taken it all to Australia. So it really doesn't exist anymore. But um, but if they were still going, they probably would still be using the database. Or if they were still using the database, they'd probably still be going. Well, that also is possible. So how about your audio chops did you this is the first time you've picked up a microphone and or was this the first time you picked up a microphone and and did any voice work or had you had any prior experience with uh audio editing and engineering and recording i've done um acting classes and that kind of thing but um apart from a a radio play recorded onto cassette when i was at school uh it was the first time that i'd tried anything like this uh, i just used I think I used Audacity to record it. Yeah, Audacity. If it wasn't that, it was it was something equally straightforward. And I got myself a $50 clip-on mic and um, sat down and read the book. It's, it's a wonderful time to be alive in that you can do what used to be very high-end creative work that used to require a lot of fancy gear that cost thousands of dollars for really very cheap and um and it's not that hard to do no there's a fairly steep learn curve but it's there's also plenty of people willing to help you you know and it's uh i mean i don't know about back back then there probably weren't as many uh youtube videos you know showing you how to how to get in on stuff like that but but um were you involved in any other communities like irc or anything like that? Not um, not that kind of community. No, I was in a, a gaming forum. But um, yeah, in fact, I think that was before YouTube. Difficult as it is to believe, YouTube hasn't really been around that long. So yeah, I think I got a couple of books from the library about audio editing and, um, and how to do recordings and podcasts. But most of it I picked up from um, from Googling around and from making the mistakes and listening to the result and realizing that it hadn't worked very well. Well, and Pokey mentioned the learning curve. At this point, it's a learning curve rather than a, a financial hurdle. You know, the, the challenge now to re- producing and recording decent-sounding audio is spending the time to learn a piece of software and to some extent buying decent equipment, but it's not – it's maybe hundreds of dollars of equipment, not – thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of equipment and audio engineers time and you know rented resources now i mean i'm here with i upgraded to a 40 dollar microphone and headset and i've got software that's freely available to to anyone producing uh recording and producing i would think decent sounding audio yeah you sound great people often compliment me on the way i sound i have a 15 dollar pair of headphones that i bought in the mid 90s and a RCA 
stick mic that I pulled out of a trash can somewhere. So yeah, it's it, you're absolutely right. It's not the financial wall. It's it's just that learning curve, and you can learn it. It's awesome. You've had Nathan Lowell on the show, haven't you? No, I wish we. I wish I'd do him. We've we've done one of his books. Oh, I think, and I think we've also done some books that he's read, not the ones that he's written, but ones he's read. Yeah, right. that's right. We did Crown Conspiracy. Yeah, that was my yeah. He um he did a lot of his recordings in his car because that was somewhere that he could go and it was quiet. I think he drove to a park in the early hours of the morning or something and sat in his car and recorded. And those recordings, of course, launched his career and he's now making quite a decent living selling his books. Oh, that's so good to hear. I, I wasn't sure because I hadn't heard from him in a while, but that's that's so good to hear that he's making a, a living at it. Yeah, I haven't heard from him for a while. That's true. Maybe maybe he's writing. I'm going to have to spoil some stuff soon. Yeah, I was going to say, X101's point about microphones is making me thirsty. Yeah, I, I think that unless anyone objects, I think it's it's time for a, a beverage break. Hey, you're the boss tonight. It's up to you, man. All right, well, I am going to run upstairs and pour my beverage, so people can either hang out and wait for me to get back, or you guys can start your own. Oh, I can wait. I'll wait till these guys get back. I got one that, that X1101 will like, and he's always got something interesting. I don't know where that guy finds his beers. He's always got good stuff. Okay, I'm back. All right, now we're just waiting for X1101. I'm back. All right, awesome. All right, I cannot wait to hear what Mike has got for a beverage in New Zealand. It's very dull. I have water. It's pretty much all I drink apart from fruit juice and milk. So um, I just have some nice filtered water. It's rainwater from our local um, hills. We live up against the hills where the water for the city is collected and in uh, in the storage dams and um, treated. And it comes right down the hill to our house. Excellent pressure. And we filter any chemicals out of it and... Um, it's uh, it it makes for a very pleasant drink. That's not dull. That's New Zealand water. You know how exotic that is to us. That's like Hobbiton water. Yeah, really. No ants have been involved in the making of this water. Oh, that's semiotic <laughs> robotic. I bet you have something equally exotic in the other direction. <laughs> I don't know about exotic, but I have my usual cup of tea here. I'm uh, sipping. Tonight's uh, tea selection was uh, Celestial Seasonings Sleepy Time Tea with Valerian Root. So it's got uh, it's like a nice chamomile blend with a little Valerian mixed in. Um, trying to uh, you know be mentally alert and have a book conversation and drink Sleepy Time Tea at the same time was an uh, interesting dilemma I put myself in this evening. Wait, Valerian Root? Is that real? That sounds like something out of Star Trek. Hold on a moment. I've, no, I, know, well, I, know I don't exactly know if it's a root. I think it's a root, but somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. It, it sounds like a brandy that uh, Captain Kirk might have served to a diplomat or something. I have some nice Valerian brandy. <laughs> no, Valerian is uh, it's an herb that is supposed to be relaxation inducing, and I, I don't know. It could be it could be hokum, but it tends to work for me. Taj, what is up, fellas? Pokey, if you check the chat, I've thrown in where I've heard Valerian root before, and that's totally going in the show notes too. Okay, good. <laughs> the um, oh, okay. So semiotic robotic. We had the uh, the tea versus 
naughty conversation at uh, at Christmas dinner at my wife's uh, parents' house as well because we got a big box of Chinese food for everybody and they my wife's parents paid for it and I picked it up and it was way too much food and I couldn't believe what the bill came to and uh I told I asked the guy I said you throw in a box of tea with this order or something and he did and he threw in a box of tea and it was not tea <laughs> it was it was a tazon exactly and that's we had that conversation at the dinner table and uh Normally, my in-laws, my mother-in-law especially, who would look at me like I'm a BS artist, it was about to. And then my sister-in-law went, no, he's right. I just read the ingredients. There's no tea in here. <laughs> so what are you drinking, Pokey? Oh, you're going to love this. I, I brought this just for you and, and saved it just for you. I have a bottle of Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Stout. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. It is not nearly as good as it was on tap when we had it at the Linux Fest. I, I was surprised at just how much I cannot taste the bourbon in the bottle of it. It's still very good. Don't get me wrong. It's still fantastic. But when we had it in that beer pub and had it on tap, it was almost like they poured a shot of bourbon at the bottom of it just, just to get the flavor into it. It was basically drinking a, about a 10-proof bourbon is really what it was. Yeah, that's what it what it tasted like. Now, this is... A damn good stout, and their their label says it all. It's a, a stout brewed with coffee and aged in oak barrels with Haitian coffee, and it, it says it all. It's very stouty. It's very dark, very um, creamy. It's not very thick, um, but it does have a nice, smooth coffee flavor to it, and not that like bitter like black coffee or burnt coffee. It's, it's just a, a, a nice, light, relaxing type of coffee flavor to it and it, it is still very enjoyable but i'm, I'm missing the uh, the bourbon flavor that i was expecting what about you taj you got anything interesting for us tonight well i just got done sitting through a three-hour online seminar course so uh there will be no beverages so i could make it through it without my bladder exploding so i am beverageless <laughs> <laughs> yeah well oh you cut out semiotic robotic right right your punchline we missed it I said that's a good reason to go beverageless. I don't know. All that dry talk would make me thirsty. All right. And I have a put it in the show notes so I wouldn't have to remember what it is. It is a uh, it's a black IPA from Stone Brewery, which if Stone makes a beer and you like that style of beer, buy it because I have not had anything out of Stone that wasn't excellent. This is called Sublimely Self-Righteous Ale and it is a black IPA. I That's an almost, awesome name. I almost bought that one. It was it was right next to the bourbon barrel stout, and it, the bottle looked fantastic, and the beer looked dark, and then I saw it was an IPA, and I was like, I can't do it. Well, and anyone not familiar, black IPAs tend to have the, the same kind of body as a stout, but then you get that sucker punch of hops there, and, and this is, you know, it, it looks like I've got a glass of cola sitting beside me. It's so dark. It wasn't very heady, but very hoppy and very delicious. Cool. Very, very cool. So, um, yeah, I couldn't believe when... Uh, what was her name again? The girl who talked real fast? Celia? Yes. I couldn't believe when Celia didn't do it. I thought for sure she was the murderer. I'll be honest with you. I wasn't entirely sure for a long time who was the murderer either. Um, apparently, Agatha Christie was the same way, so I don't feel so bad. And I've read a lot. I've read a lot of things that Stephen King has said, 
and at least with some of his stories, he's hearing it as he writes it for the first time. Sorry, yeah, I was- Steve, Stephen King is a very famous pantser. That's one of the reasons why his stories often have kind of inconclusive endings. And sorry to the Stephen King reference. I, I live in, in Maine up here in the U.S., and so he's, by most people's standards, he is just my neighbor about two hours up the road. So he's kind of considered a local hero around here. I would imagine. He looks like When the murderer was revealed to be the Countess, I have to admit, Mike, I was sort of let down because I was expecting – that just made so much sense. You know, that just made – that made – it was so – so there was such a good fit there. Uh, and so I thought, oh boy, is that going to be the is that going to be the opportunity for the twist, the great reveal? And that was it. That seems such a natural, obvious fit. I was thinking somebody like Salia, um, or even Corius. Uh, but then there was a double twist at the end that just totally knocked my socks off. So uh, I, you know, got my enjoyment later on. So you sort of, I love, I love the way that you've written the book to sort of. I don't know. In a murder mystery like that, one would expect the the revelation of the murderer to be the great reveal at the end of the book, but it, it is not, right? There's two more twists at the end that seal the deal. Yes, the first twist is that there was no twist, and then there are the two twists. Yeah, that's what Perfectly I was Perfectly said, say. yes, exactly right. That's what I was going to say is I, I thought for sure the Countess couldn't have done it because it would be way too obvious. But then the reason why it wasn't obvious was not obvious. So that was uh, that was very well done. Yes, it displayed a very subtle hand. It was excellently done. Bear in mind, too, that Gregorius isn't all that bright. And he doesn't – okay, now maybe this, this didn't come across in the text, but – when he was reading his journal entry, the way it's the way he said his own name, he didn't sound like he liked himself very much. He he it, it almost said it with disdain or self-loathing. But then I didn't get that out of the text. But I don't know. Maybe he he doesn't think as highly of himself as he does his his friends for sure. But he also doesn't. No, he definitely it. doesn't. And when they're talking about stature and and station, and he deliberately self-deprecates, and he's self-deprecating all the time. But when he deliberately lowers himself uh, to make a point about uh, being equal. You cut out there real bad. You said equal, and you got about half the word out. You back? Woo, I'm back. All right. You said that he was self-deprecating to make himself equal, and that was the last thing we heard. Uh, And then I just said that that's sort of a moment where, you know, you see his, his opinion of himself shine through. Yeah, all of, pretty much all of my heroes are, outsiders and um Bass is he's physically and mentally the opposite of me in many ways, but um but I took a lot of personal experience of being a bit of an outsider and, and used that to depict how he felt about himself and how he felt about the people around him. Oh, I had a really good point to make about the way his sister recognized him and now I can't remember what I was gonna say. At least I thought it was a really good point. I don't know. Maybe it'll come to me. I, I, it was really interesting how she, like right at the beginning, pointed out that, you know, he would be something if only he were ever challenged. And no one has ever challenged him because no one thought much of him. And no, no one thought much of him because he didn't put on a good face. And he didn't put on a good face because he was never challenged. So she she knew that it was just an opportunity um, that he lacked, that, that it was all there inside him. And I thought it was great how that played out slowly i mean so slowly that that the fact that it turned out to be a hero in the end really really simmered throughout the whole book 
Yeah, it's it's no challenge really to have the big square jawed, uh, good looking guy be the hero. Having the overweight guy who's not too bright be the hero is uh, is a lot harder. I believe the only appropriate comment here is Excelsior. I was going to say, wait, it sounds nothing like Hollywood. <laughs> I don't know. John Candy played plenty of heroes. I, sorry, go ahead, Mike. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say I, I hate to skip so far to the to the back of the story. I hope we can come back if somebody else has a, a point from earlier on. But I was a little disappointed. I, I can't help it. I was a little disappointed that Gregorius was not more mournful of Corius. Even though he never really knew Corius, he, it still, to me, it felt like a loss. And I was kind of surprised that he didn't respond that way. Well, there's a sense, of course, in which he hasn't lost Corius. Yeah, exactly. In the in the sense of the the masks, of course, Corius has never changed to him. But it um, it, it was strange. I don't know how else to put it. Sorry. Well, I had just a logistical question. There is um, when Juliana is relating the story of how Corius had died, and she kind of assumed his role, but she was. I didn't really catch her profession, but I got that it was something akin to a tailor. But then Corius went on this seafaring journey, got to – ended up coming back, and then Juliana just kind of slipped back into her life. Did nobody notice she was missing? There was no – I didn't catch any explanation of her being gone. Yeah, I didn't attempt one. I kind of saw her as being freelance rather than employed and – if somebody disappears for a while in the city of masks, you just assume they've been off wearing a different mask, I guess. Well, I guess that does make sense. I hadn't thought about it in that respect. Which was, of course, the case in, in this case. I liked how um, how the Countess had doubles for a while she could be off somewhere else. That never occurred to me, and it should have, but it didn't. I don't know, did it occur to any of you other guys that it could have happened that way, or, or were you as blindsided to, as I was that, oh, they, look, there's a double, there's someone wearing her mask while she's off murdering? No, I thought I didn't see it coming, and I thought it was perfect. Yeah, that really floored me. For me, it was one of those things that you, you hear him say that, and you're like, of course that's what they do. Why didn't I think of that? One of the fun things about any speculative fiction is to work everything out to the ultimate logical conclusion. And I spent quite a bit of time thinking about if you have this system of masks, what does that enable? What does it prevent? How are people going to game it? Well, kind of like that. Yeah, I'd love to see, not some, maybe not a sequel, but like a, another story in the same setting where where you have people, uh, you know, wearing masks for for which they do not have license, I think was was uh, Gregorius's words on the subject. But I'd, I'd like to, you know, hear a story of people who, who did that often enough that they could actually change their station in life or improve it or, or, you know, somehow be different or maybe like the, the criminal underground getting away with stuff like that. I thought that was, uh, I mean, even just the when he asked about people committing crimes, in the um, uh, was it the un uncast mask? Is that what it, I forget what it was called now? But yeah. Even that was real interesting. Yes, it was. So since I missed the beginning, I I don't know if this got brought up or not, and it probably did because we're all pretty smart. Did anybody else just hear the ideas about anonymity that we were talking about a few books back, just like in the back of your head the whole time? A metaphor for the internet. No, it's a good point. But well, I wasn't here at the beginning either. But uh, 
That's a really good point. No, we no one touched on that yet. But now that you say it, I'm smarter than everybody. <laughs> that's what you're saying. Yeah, pretty much. Well, you are the teacher, so we would hope so. Maybe semiotic robotic could touch you. You're too kind. No, I can't touch Taj. He does have that smooth voice. Mike, did that go through your head at all when you were writing it? Not that I remember. It almost seems like, based on when Mike said he wrote it, it seems more like a metaphor that fits after the fact rather than during. Because the internet becoming a, a, a real place of purposeful anonymity seems to be a more recent thing than in the early 90s. It, people were anonymous there simply because you, you were. It wasn't people didn't go there to be anonymous. Yeah, but then how do you make the more recent, the uh, the tearing down of all the an anonymity uh, fit that? I didn't say it was a perfect metaphor. Yeah. They're personalists. I went to I went to make a YouTube comment the other day, and my YouTube name is gone. They've, it's it's only my real name there anymore, and I can't find a way to change it back or change it. And for the past two years, I've been telling YouTube I don't want to use my real name. I I like the handle I have on you. It's just gone. So we can't look on at YouTube anymore for Space Pokey. No, I was never Space Pokey there. That was a missed opportunity. <laughs> it was something that never occurred to anyone but you guys speaking i'm glad you brought up the we're talking about the the politics of masking and unmasking but i'm i really w like the sermon about well just the the sermon that the uh whoever who who was it again that was that uh ended up putting on the the mask of the the sun god well it was the sun god <laughs> Thomas, is that, is that what his name? I, I'm so bad with names in these books, too. Yes, Thomas. And I agree. It was an excellent sermon. The way that it was... And it's so strange, too, because I didn't... I didn't... Listening to that, I didn't picture you sitting in your study, laboring over that sermon for hours and hours and how it would fit the story. But I did... I did picture Thomas sitting in his study, laboring for, for hours in how to make his point, to sort of mask his point, as the case may be, in, you know, within the, the construct of another point. And uh, that I did picture, and I, I totally bought into it. I, I just, I love that. That sermon was fantastic. Yeah, where did the inspiration, what, what were you trying to say there, Mike? What would you say motivated your construction of the, of the sermon? Hmm. Um, I think it was just what went in that place. Or or put another way, did you plan that thing out for days in advance, or were you just trying to make him sound like a pompous windbag? No, I, I think by that point I had a pretty good handle on who all of the characters were and the kinds of things they would say, and that was the kind of thing Thomas would say. I didn't mean to say he sounded like he sounded like he was pretending to be a... I know more what I meant to say, but you, you got the point. But uh, that's really cool. Yeah, um, it's a strange phenomenon with characters, and authors talk about how characters take over and refuse to do things or insist on doing things. And we know that they're just parts of our own minds, but um, it is quite spooky how we've we've constructed this. Well, it's it's theory of mind, isn't it? It's our basic social ability to to um, imagine how other people are going to react. And authors just happen to be quite good at that particular social skill of imagining how a person who was like this would think and act and speak. 
So would it make sense to say that the upper class is more likely to lean characterist, whereas lower classes are more likely to lean personalist? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Well, aside from characterism being the official religion, it also acts to prop up the existing system because – Right. That's what I'm thinking. You know, you are the mask you wear and, you know, that's who you always have been and always will be. That kind of idea inherently props up an existing system rather than being a catalyst for, you know, growing a new system. Oh, I don't know if I can agree with that. I think any system is going to prop up the existing system. The people at the top want to stay at the top and they're going to uh, manipulate constructs in do so. So I, I can see where if you were the lower class, you would certainly see it as the system that's holding you down, but it's it's not the system itself. It's the manipulation of the system. So, you know, I, I think it's kind of a, a false positive. Oh, I agree completely. I was just saying that the, the specific structure of um, that specific system lends itself to doing that particularly easily. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it does show, you know, good writing that the people at the top used it as efficiently as they did. Yeah, to be able to contort a system of play uh, and turn it into an entire mechanism of social control. Again, as we were speaking about a little bit a little bit ago, you know, that takes guile. Yeah, it just seemed like, the sort of, again, the sort of thing that people in that position would be liable to do. I really like the whole assassination attempt that this all gets built around because, I mean, only in this story can you have that type of assassination happen. It's, okay, you put on that mask, you become God. I killed God. Come at me, bro. <laughs> I don't know. I thought Douglas Adams did it pretty good with the babblefish. Fair point. The babblefish is just awesome. So maybe it was the masks then that when these characters put on the mask, they became the character of the mask. And the same is true for the city, where the city put on the facade of the glorious city and it became this glorious city. Maybe that's why I could visualize it so much better than I could in, in I can in other stories, just knowing that it's all a, a construct, even to the people in the construct and they all know it. And maybe that's why I was able to go along for the ride a little easier than I can with, with some other books. As far as setting is concerned, as far as the characters go, I just, they were, they were very well-written characters and I, I thought they shone through their masks no matter what. <laughs> Well, and I think that it's interesting that an entire city makes not just a social, but a social and political stance out of the willing suspension of disbelief. And this would differ from anyone else, how? Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's a willing suspension of disbelief. It was just a suspension of disbelief. They, I mean, it was mandated, but that doesn't mean you're willing. There are plenty of people who believe all kinds of crazy stuff because of willing suspension of disbelief on their own. They don't need anybody telling them to do it. Yeah. I mean, I drive 55 miles an hour on the highway all the time. It doesn't mean I'm willing to at 55 miles an hour. It's because the man's keeping you down. That's right, the man with the mask. Suspension of disbelief is tougher to leverage against the characterist, though, because folks like that, well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say they believe wholeheartedly, and they're completely invested in the system that that says when you're wearing a mask, you, you hold nothing in reserve. You literally are that person. And so there is, there's no reason to believe otherwise, but there is a little bit of a, uh, a hedge there. Cause Mike says that, you know, sometimes the unmasked or the uncast rather 
can do things that uh, they become seen, right? So to go from seen to unseen leads me to believe that there's a, a moment when somebody can break character and point someone else out, uh, even when they're uncast. Oh, no. If you break character to point someone else out, you're unmasked, and that's a problem. And that was... Um, I, I liked how the law in this book was so closely tied to the religion that they practiced. So if you broke character, you're not only a criminal, you're a heretic as well. And that, you know, it weighs even more. Yeah. If you, if you um, become unmasked, then you're in all of the trouble. Well, I also found, since we haven't really brought it up yet, I also found the, there were almost two dichotomies of religion. There was the personalist versus the characterists, but then there was also the sun versus the moon worshipers. And bringing that other element in was very interesting as well. Yeah, I kind of, uh, I kind of wanted to introduce a gender aspect, and um, the sun versus moon does that. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way, X one one hundred one. But there is a sort of matrix where you can say, like, it's almost like like D D and D matrix, where you can be like chaotic neutral, chaotic good. You can be characterist moon worshiping, personalist moon worshiping. You know, characterist sun worshiping, personalist. You can you can sort of plot the different characters. Uh, and their motivations uh, on that grid. Take a or drink. You, what's that, Taj? Said take a drink. We had a D and D reference. <laughs> yeah, was, we was, was we waited to that. You could be true neutral and wear the mask of the innocent man. And we waited just for you to make that too, Taj. I'm not even the one that made it. No, but we couldn't do it without you here. We we hung on to it. That's the truth. It's been in the show notes for over an hour. Damn it. <laughs> Wow, you keep dropping off semiotic robotic. Is that something going on with your network or what's up with that? Yeah, it's my network. For some reason my neck my neck connection keeps dropping me and my Wi Fi connection must be spotty tonight. Sorry about that. It's okay. It comes back quick enough. I did take a sip of tea when I was supposed to take a drink for a obligatory D and D reference though. Thank oh, you, sir. I reached for an empty glass. I, my beer was too good. I I don't know how we're gonna get our Star Trek or Star Wars references in here though. That's Already- what the post show's for. I already got the Star Trek reference in when you were chewing Valerian root. Yeah, that was already that's Max has been ticked. You see, but that was really a Fight Club reference. Okay, here we go. Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel, DC, Doctor Who. I I can't think of anything else. Um, we talk about BSG. So say we all and Firefly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, so Mike, what do you know about fencing? What if, what anybody knows, um, I've never fixed. So um, I just know some of the terminology and uh, and what anyone knows from watching um, movies. Yeah, okay. Because it, it did seem to play a, a fairly big role, but it wasn't – you didn't go into a lot of detail. So I, I thought that might have uh, been the case. But um, I do enjoy a good fencing scene. That was one of the scenes I knew fairly early on was going to be in there. There was going to be a chase across the rooftops, and there was going to be a sword fight. Oh, Taj, I mean, uh, Semiotic Robotic just had to leave, and we didn't get a chance to say goodbye to him audibly. Well, here it is, Semiotic Robotic. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. It's always awesome having you on the show. Yeah, a chase across the rooftop is another one of those things where way early in the book, I should have said, hey, there's a chase on the rooftops coming, and I, I just didn't. I didn't even know who was going to be chasing whom or why. I just knew that there would be one. <laughs> well, well, you knew it was going to be Gregorius chasing, but yeah, who he was chasing, you're right. 
Well, the architecture of the city is too perfect not to. Well, it, it's kind of uh, the other way around, if anything, that because I knew there was going to be a chase across the rooftops, I had to put the um, I had to put the bridges up there. Oh, right, right. Oh, man, I just had another point and lost it again. I'm doing not good tonight. The beer must have been really good. Yeah, it's like 8%, and that was my second one. Fortunately, I'm out. I, there's no more, so I'm not going to get any worse, I hope. Of ideas or beer? Oh, it feels like both at the moment. Oh, let me check my notes. I think there was one more thing I thought I didn't see getting wrapped up and I wanted to ask about. So they resolved the characterism versus personalism debate. But they didn't really resolve the moon worshippers still being a legal debate, or they did it in such a way that I didn't see it. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I think that probably falls in the same basket as characterist, personalist, only less so, in that um, Thomas now has a voice in the ear of the ruler, and so can at worst suggest that the persecution against the moon worshippers be quietly dropped. It sounds like the answer to all the problems in Bon Vidal is going to, and by the way, what a fantastic name. Excellent to hear it every time. It seemed like all the problems in Bon Vidal can be solved by just giving the people a little more freedom. Yeah. What I've come to discover as I've continued writing is that the, the seeds of the conflict the seeds of the next conflict exist within the resolution of the previous conflict. So all of the things that are answers and solutions to the conflicts in this book, if I ever write a sequel, those are going to be the causes of the conflicts in the next book. Oh, man, if you ever write a sequel, I want to email. Well, I have a mailing list. Oh, right on. I'll get right on that. That's that's excellent. Um, I know what I was going to say is that I think that's one of the things that I love about audiobooks so much is when I'm reading a book, I'm kind of a slow reader. So I tend to think about it a lot while I'm reading it. And I might have been able to, you know, pick a lot of these things out, you know, the things that, you know, might have been obvious or whatever. When I'm reading an audiobook, it's more like being a kid again, where I'm just kind of, you know, sitting on the, the blanket on the floor in my mom's room and she's sitting up in bed reading to us as kids. And you just kind of, hanging out listening and taking it all taking it all maybe for granted as opposed to uh overthinking too much of it and it just a lot of times i don't know maybe maybe it's not every audiobook might not even be a majority of them but this one certainly was that way where i could just listen uh the suspension of disbelief was no problem throughout this this whole book for me i just was able to to listen and, and take it in and um yeah it's it, it it's one of the one of those experiences where, where storytelling becomes what storytelling should be. And, and uh, man, thanks so much for that. Well, thanks for saying that. Has anybody brought up the structure of the narrative, like how it's been done in journals? We did, but I'm sure you'll have some interesting and new points to make, so go for it. I just, for me, I don't know. It, I, I kept wanting it to be more narrative and less journal. Uh, and that's just, that maybe that's just a preference for me. I see why you would make that choice. It it, it gives you some some tools and some things to play with but at the same time like me i kept wanting just for it to i don't know it felt like it didn't flow for me like it was it was a very stop start which obviously because it's journal entries but i think that that was if i had one big criticism of it that would be for me personally what it was is that i didn't really like the journal format 
that much. Not to say that the story is not awesome. I love the story. To me, it seems very visual. So I kind of think of it more cinematically um, in my head. And the journal kind of, I, I don't, it's kind of a step removed from that. So it was kind of hard for me to get into it. Once I got into it, I was fine. But it took a, a while for me to kind of get the gist of what was going on and kind of get into the characters through, through the journals. Wow, I couldn't disagree with you more. I don't think I've ever disagreed with you this strongly. I thought the the construct of the journal totally walked me into this one with, with like through the character. You wow, I I couldn't have asked for a better way to be told this story. I'm sorry to disagree with you, but I I loved it. You also don't like Kurt Vonnegut, so Oh, that's right. And coincidentally, nor do I. That's the secret. Yeah, journals, in a sense, that was a creative constraint. It was one of those things, it's the same as, as writing in first person as a creative constraint. There's, you can only show what that character sees. And because Gregorius, who tells most of the story, is kind of an unreliable narrator in the sense that he doesn't always get what's going on, that was almost a deliberate creative constraint for me to make it a, a little bit more of a challenge to convey what was going on. Right on. I mean, my obviously, it's, for me, it's a taste thing, I think, more than anything. Like I said, not to diss the story at all. I love the story. I really dig the book. It was just that that was my one little nitpicky thing. And I, it's obviously me. <laughs> That's the problem. And like you said, it does. It gives you some a different way of tackling the story, which is cool. Just wasn't my my cup of tea, I guess. That's absolutely fine. Now, I I liked the uh, the journal entry bit not only because you only saw it through his eyes, and he was the only character who you were. Well, he was the most interesting character for sure, but also that when the journaling was done through other people, it didn't reveal anything of the plot, which I really appreciated, and. A lot of it was, most of it was just external views of the main character whose journal you were reading. So it, it gives you some insight into how his reality is, is uh, you know, slightly, I don't want to say altered, but I mean, everybody's reality is altered. But it gives you a little, a, a better um, uh, foothold to to find out where his perspective is, I, I guess. Uh, that's probably a really poor way to say that. Yeah, the um, the extra documents, in a way, are add-ons to, to enrich the story. Celia's journals, the letters back and forth, the the play, which is a flashback. The play was was really fun too. It was um, it was amusing in its uh, simplicity and and how the guys like thought they were getting away with telling a story when it was just so obviously real people. Yeah, I really loved the play. I thought that was that was awesome. Like, oh, guess what happened to us yesterday? But it wasn't really us, wink, wink. My uh, my friend has this thing. <laughs> yeah, and he met this girl. She uh, she lives in Canada. You wouldn't know her, but uh, she was there. Yeah, it was, and it <laughs> and it was so it was so in context that all these people in masks need to tell a story from within a play. It was just, it was great. It was perfect. 
I also really like the uh, journal entries um, because even though I just said I didn't like it, the I can't remember the character's name, the girl that talks really fast. Because the running thing is, is I listen to everything at like twice or three times the speed. And I got to her point. I, could make, <laughs> I was just like, what is going on? I thought like my MP3 player had messed up. I didn't know what was that. Yeah, I made the same point earlier, Taj, because I listen to stuff at about 1.8 and it's the same thing. If you read the uh, the written version, her journal entries are completely unpunctuated and just one long run-on sentence. I would almost expect them not to even have spaces or anything in them, the way that things just kind of fell out of her mouth. I was going to say it would be it would be excellent if in the the text version you had control over the kerning and that kind of thing, where you could you know space the the letters out a little oddly or or maybe. Have the have some of them just be slightly higher or lower than they ought to be? That had to take a lot of talent to uh, to voice record because <laughs> I know I would have messed it up like twenty times trying to get through it. Oh yeah, was each one of those done in like? Did you have to splice it together, or were those one full read? It must have been like several takes to get it. But did you nail each one a whole time once? Um, I think I did some retakes. What I did when I was recording was if I messed something up, I'd just start again from before I messed up and then edit it out afterwards. So a lot of it was continuous takes once I got in the in the momentum of it. How long did the recording process actually take you? Oh, I don't remember now. It was um, it was a few weeks, I think. Wow, that's fast for a book that length. A lot of people say it's many months. Yeah, I think I had some time off and um, spent uh, spent a few hours a day doing the recordings. Okay, are are you married? Your family? Did that? Uh, what does your family think of this? I'm married, no kids, so um, I think my wife is happy for me to be out of her hair some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Says every wife ever. Yeah, and what does she has she has she listened to the audio book or read the book? She's uh, read the text, yeah. I had quite a few of my friends read it uh, before I published it. Um, They had some really good comments as well. I have some very smart friends. And um, we had kind of a a book club discussion, I guess, uh, when everyone had read it and they made their suggestions and said, oh, uh, it would be cool if... And I incorporated some of those things. I don't remember what they were at this distance in time, but I know that I did incorporate at least a couple of suggestions of things that we thought would be cool. That is really cool. I thought for sure you were going to say you had them all read it before you showed it to your wife. No. I don't know. Most everything I do when I go to show my wife, I'm so proud of myself. And here, honey, check it out. And she just kind yeah, of uh-huh. looks and goes, I don't get That's it. That's nice. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's good. Your, your online friends will get it, right, honey? Try having a wife who's an academic. She just eviscerates anything I ever write. Oh, everything you have is marked in red. <laughs> Looks like somebody went on a stabby spree on my paper. <laughs> my wife is a teacher, and for a year and a half, my sister lived with us, and she was a teacher. I'm sorry, bro. I was just wrong about pretty much everything. How is that different than every other day? Well, when I go to work, I'm not wrong as much. My wife's a professor, and... Nothing makes her happier than if she shows me something, if I put like a star sticker on it or a smiley face. That's awesome. Yet when I show her stuff, she goes, yeah, okay, that's nice, honey, and just doesn't get it. 
man, I hate to say it, but I can't think of anything else to discuss about the plot of this book. We had such a, a good conversation pre-spoiler and we've spoiled everything and I hate to think it's so over. I love this one. It's one of my, it's absolutely one of my favorite books. I know I've said it three times already, but I, I'm not exaggerating. It, it's, I mean, top three of, of all my favorite audiobooks. I'm deeply flattered. Well, and you know what? If if that is enough to flatter you, I'll tell you, you're up there with, um, oh, shoot, now I can't remember the name of the book, the Lester Del Rey book that was one of the first that we did on the audiobook club. Oh, I'll have to go look that up now. And And like... Nathan Lowell and uh, Scott Sigler stuff. I mean, those those are that's the company that that you're in. When I talk about you know audiobooks that are that are so much fun to listen to, and uh, you know, dare I even say Mark Twain. There's a there's a lot of Mark Twain stuff I've heard in audiobooks that I, this ranks right up there with it. And I'm I'm, I'm not exaggerating or, or blowing smoke when I say that. Have you ever considered cloning yourself, Parky? <laughs> uh, my wife would uh, would would kill me twice if I tried. Good, good. Well, I have a number of other books. Uh, they're not very like this one, though. But then what is? Yeah, okay. That does bring up something before you go too far there. Um, for our show notes, where can people get this book, uh, some of your other books, and and. I don't just mean uh, freely available like they are on patio books, but where can we buy your books and where can we find your other work? All of my stuff is on Amazon. Um, most of it is also on Kobo, Barnes & Noble uh, and the like. Um, City of Masters on Smashwords. The easiest way to find everything that I do is to go to my Google Plus profile because that's where I'm most active. So if you go to gplus.to slash Mike R-M, M-I-K-E-R-M. That'll take you to my Google Plus profile and everything else is linked from there. Well, excellent. I'll definitely get that in the show notes and so our listeners can have a link to check that out. I appreciate that if you would do that, X1101. I was just trying to type while he talked, but I seem to have lost my cursor in the Etherpad page and uh, I'm not sure what I have to do to get it back. I'll, I'll try uh, closing it and reopening the page because I can't get a cursor in there but um and also thank you for finding a uh, badge of infamy was the name of the book i was uh grasping for that was that was another book that i mean these these two books gave me sort of the same kind of feeling where the story was really interesting the characters were really well built and well developed and the whole time was this overarching feeling of of politics being the uh the, the master of everyone's decisions ultimately and um just the conversation uh that ensues when you when you talk about you know speculative politics <laughs> it was um it was great it was a real thinker it's a real fun one to uh, to have a conversation about well good i seem to always end up with politics in my books i'm not sure why i'm not even i don't think particularly political i'm certainly not involved in real world politics but it just seems to be something that keeps coming up i guess i'm just interested in the different ways that people organize themselves that's a really good way of putting it i, I like that well one thing i've one thing i've learned from working on projects for basically 20 years is that when people join together, they can do really interesting stuff that no one person could do. And if you think about free and open source and 
uh, how people build on each other's contributions and so forth. It's um, there's a lot to be said for collective effort of various sorts. And the thing about politics is that it, it recognises that that's important, but it isn't actually very good at it. And when when you're doing something that's important in a way that's kind of not working very well, that's great story fodder. Wow, that was a really good way to point that out about politics. And also, welcome to Hacker Public Radio. You sound like you've been here the whole time. Yeah, I kind of, um, I, I'm not deeply involved in open source or anything like that, but I certainly appreciate that it exists. So, Mike, I guess the, the last question left to ask you is, uh, what is the next audiobook we have to review? Well, I'm going to suggest a book that's also on Podio Books. It's by, I'm going to have to look it up. It's by Mary Holland, and the title is Maker Rules. Okay, cool. That's not one that I've heard of. Can you give us a uh, a, a brief overview of, of uh, what we can expect? You know, like I said, without spoiling too much, I mean, obviously it's it's coming as a recommendation on good authority, so uh, I'm all in. Sorry, I got the title wrong. It's actually Matcher Rules. The concept is that it's a colonized planet. It's a space opera without the space. In other words, it's more like one of Ursula Le Guin's books in many ways. It's um, sociological speculation. And on this planet, they've discovered... Uh, an alien or alien device or something, it's never quite clear, which links up people who are going to um, who are going to do well together into effectively families. And they're some, sometimes they're couples, sometimes they're groups of three. And it's not... Initially, you might think that it's, it's polyamory, yay, but it really isn't. It's more about people working together and fitting together in order to to achieve things than it is about family being being multiple people married to each other and it's the usual conflict of the central authority doesn't understand and is sending somebody to investigate and what's going to happen next um so that's Mary Holland maker rules and it's it's very different from a lot of what you'll read. As I say, it's not in space. It's on a planet, but it's not Earth. And there's not a lot in the way of technological speculation, but the sociological speculation is uh, is definitely there. The other author that it reminds me of slightly would be Sherry Tepper, maybe Raising the Stones or one of those, one of her books like that in the way that it deals with the way that people interact, which, as I've said, is something I'm interested in. Cool. That uh, that sounds like another deep conversation for the audiobook club. It's my favorite. Yeah, the premise sounds awesome. Government screwing up? Yeah, it's, I can relate. And, in fact, the local government has kind of become corrupt and has been taken captive by narrow interests and, you know, the usual stuff. Sounds par for the course. Government's doing what governments do. All right, we shouldn't say any more about it till we read it, or listen to it, rather, excuse me. Thanks for that suggestion, too, Mike. That's uh, that's great. I can't wait. 
So does that wrap it up, guys? You had any closing thoughts, anything else? I think I've said all I have to say. Other than thank you very much, Mike, for coming on, taking time out of your day to sit and chat with us. And how is tomorrow? Oh, time travel jokes. It's not too bad, reasonably sunny in Auckland, New Zealand anyway. What's the local time you have there? Three o'clock. AM, PM? Uh, in the afternoon. Oh, all right, cool. Uh, and Klaatu has nearly no excuse for not joining us. Maybe he's working. That's the only reasonable excuse. He's got a nice job now. I was about to make that same joke. I've been waiting all day to make that joke. You can yes. explain the joke to, to Mike uh, while my wife blows her nose here. I can't really key up. Well, the joke being that it's Tuesday here and Wednesday there. So you're you're in the future, man. Was it the time travel joke he wanted us to explain or the Klaatu joke? No, the Klaatu joke. Oh, my wife just pinched the shit out of me. Sorry, Mike. Yes, we have a, a good friend who's from the States. He's uh, probably, I think, from the East Coast, but he moved to New Zealand for work. And um, he was an audiobook club member early on, and he came back later as an author. Uh, and then did he come on and review another book after we reviewed his? I don't know. I don't think so. But anyway, Nothing. he's a good guy. Uh, he's not been on since Taj and I started, I don't think. Nope. Yes, well, I, I normally would be at work, but I have a cold, so um, it kind of worked out well. Although I had I had cleared with my project manager that I could sit off in a room and talk to you guys, but um, in the event, I was home anyway. Oh, it's really nice of him. Thank him for allowing you to do that. Uh, if you hadn't been sick, I'm sorry to hear you're sick. Yeah, uh, I've had a cold now for three and a half weeks. I'm getting a bit tired of it. Oh, that's a long cold. Yeah, it started at the beginning of my Christmas break. Yeah, I had to get out of work an hour and a half early tonight to make it here. I switched my job, and I don't get out till 7 p.m., which is normally when we, we have always started the show. So, yeah, when, when X1101 wraps us up, we'll have to talk about that, guys. No kidding. Speaking of wrap-ups, does anyone have any final points to make? I'd like to reiterate that I love this audiobook. I'll be listening to it again. Uh, I'm not going to wait as long between listens this time because the first time I heard this was years ago. Uh, I'll, I'll probably listen to it again soon. Oh, and my mom loved it too when she listened to it. I just want to thank uh, Mike again for coming on. It's always nice to have the author on so you can uh, we can pick your brain about what was going on. My pleasure. Well, then, thank you everyone for listening. This has been the Audio Book Club for Hacker Public Radio. Join us sometime and enjoy an audiobook. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Port knocking. <laughs>